to the profound question, where is home? The great theologian Pumba once said, home is where your rump rests. <laughs> That's just good. However, in this series, as we are studying the book of Daniel, as people have been exiled from your home and they are facing the question, where is our home? The answer that we have come back to each week is in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 27, that says, the eternal God is where our home is. That's where our dwelling place is. And it's good to know that he's our dwelling place, but how strong of a foundation is that? The answer is, underneath are the everlasting. And I'm not a super smart guy, but I know that everlasting means lasts forever. (laughs) There's not a lot of that I can find when I look to the left and to the right. But underneath my dwelling place in the presence of God are the arms that are strong enough to last forever. That's home. As we're working chapter by chapter through the book of Daniel, we find ourselves this week in Daniel chapter 3 with one of the most famous stories, not just in Daniel and not just in the Old Testament, but in the whole Bible. As a matter of fact, it's such a well-known story for a lot of people that we might would think we know more than we might know. And so I'd encourage you with an open heart this morning, and by the way, if this is not a familiar story, I don't say that to shame you. Maybe you're new to the Bible, maybe you didn't grow up in church, and maybe this is brand new to you. For a lot of us in this room, though, we've known this story so long, we can't remember the first time we heard it. So grab your Bibles if you would. If you don't have a Bible today, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. And that's our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. Uh, but we're going to hold our Bibles up this morning. We have a creed that we say every week before we jump into God's Word. And so if that's where you're at on your spiritual journey, then join with us as we declare this together this morning. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind. And give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn to Daniel chapter 3. It's page 692. If you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you. Daniel chapter number 3. As you're turning to Daniel 3, let me just say this. Um, the, The story that we'll look at today is of the fiery furnace. And there's a couple things about the story of the fiery furnace that I think a lot of us heard incorrectly. For instance, a lot of us think this is the courage of three teenage boys to not bow and worship before an altar. The fact is, uh, scholars would tell us there's somewhere between two or three years between chapter 1 and chapter 2. So if they were in their late teen years in chapter 1... They might not have even been teenagers by the time we got to chapter 2. And then between chapter 2 and chapter 3, we think somewhere around 16 or 17, depending on the smart person that you study, 16 or 17 years passed. So somewhere around 20 years have passed since we started this. And so these are actually not three teenage boys. These are three very young adults. The older I get, the more that 35 or 36 or 37 is really young. And so uh, these these are three uh, young adult men. But we pick up the story in verse number one. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 
whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. A couple things here. Um, clearly, Daniel has, for, uh, Nebuchadnezzar rather, has forgotten the lesson that he learned from Daniel last Sunday morning. <laughs> I don't know if he was here last Sunday morning. Maybe you weren't here last Sunday morning, and I'd encourage you to go uh, watch uh, the sermon on YouTube as we unpack chapter 2. But he had this dream where he saw this statue where just the head was gold, which represented his kingdom. And Daniel told him, here's the prophecy, here's the vision from this, your kingdom's not going to last forever. And he was like, there's no God except for the God of Daniel, we should worship him. But somehow, in the next 16 or 17 years, he was like, nope, the statue has not just got a head of gold, the whole statue's going to be gold. My kingdom's never going to end. So he builds this statue. Now, we don't measure things by cubits today. I don't measure anything. When I get out of tape measure, my wife's like, oh, what are we going to break today? I, I don't measure anything. But six cubits, the width of it, is nine feet. If you want perspective in the room, uh, this screen is nine feet tall. So if it were laid on its side, that's how wide it would be. But multiply that by ten. That's only ten percent of the height of this statue Wow, that's not small, right? Pretty obnoxious, actually. This massive statue is built. Apparently, King Nebuchadnezzar really does believe he's the thing. He really does believe that his kingdom's never going to end. One uh, author that I read said we could call this chapter round two between King Nebuchadnezzar and the God of the Bible. Round two between his kingdom and the kingdom of God. Verse number two. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather, and here we've got this list that's going to be repeated a couple times. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and in case we forgot anybody, all the officials. It's interesting, again, if, if you study scholars, they, they try to make sense of this list, and they're like, this doesn't even make sense. There's not been a moment where every single person in any form of government and authority was ever called to a central place. This is bizarre. This is a very strange moment, which is why I think we see this list repeated multiple times. We would just say the who's who of the power structure was called and summoned. Like everybody who's somebody. All of Washington, D.C. got summoned to Babylon, and all of every capital from every state is summoned to Babylon, and every mayor of every small little one-stop sign town is summoned to Babylon. Everybody who's everybody. And then in case we forgot everybody, everybody else, all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the list again. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. They stood before the image the Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse number whatever. I can't read. My uh, eyes are too blind. Four. And the herald proclaimed. So if you want to, you can picture like the long trumpets. And the little guy walks up. Hear ye, hear ye. Like. Right? That, that kind of actually is happening here. I, I don't know that there's trumpets, but yeah. He proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, all peoples, nations, and languages, pause. That's significant as well. Not just 
everybody who's who, but everybody else also. Some scholars think, and I wish so bad I knew how they got this number, but some multiple scholars believe there's a million people summoned to this event. That's quite the ribbon cutting, right? A million people. Y'all know Maurice and I call Jacksonville, Florida home. That entire city has a million people in it. A million people have gathered. Maybe that's why they had to make the thing so tall, is the people in the back couldn't see it because there's no LED screens, right? A million people. Everybody is gathered together in the same place. We've not seen a moment like this in all of human history, except for in Genesis chapter 11. On the same real estate where they were building something else really tall, but not tall to signify us, tall to get to God, the Tower of Babel. In Genesis chapter 11, God confuses their languages and he divides them. But in the very next chapter in Genesis 12, he gives a blessing to Abraham. Through you, all these nations that we just spread will be blessed and there will be a day of unity where they will see the Messiah. And that's not just Genesis 11 and 12. When we read the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, John beholds a multitude that no one could number. From every language, every tribe, every people, and every tongue, standing before the throne. And they are saying in glorious unison, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, who sits upon the throne. This is quite the day. This is quite the event. Verse number 5. So what does the guy say to all those people? When you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, I don't even know what a trigon is. Like I looked it up and it didn't even make sense. I'm not sure what that is. So if there's a musician here who knows what a trigon is, I would love to know that afterwards because it really, I don't even know how it makes noise. Harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship. This is all about worship. Worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And if, if you're not motivated to worship, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to motivate you to worship with this. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So, so much for come as you are, seeker sensitive. <laughs> like... No, worship or get burned alive. Okay, I'm really motivated to worship now. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, kind of. Because not actually everybody did. Now, one, I'll pause here and just say this. One of the questions that we ask about Daniel chapter 3 is, where is Daniel? And the very clear biblical authoritative answer is, we don't know because God didn't tell us. But we sometimes are like, hey, maybe because Daniel was in such a position of authority that he was like up on the platform that day and wasn't required to bow. Maybe he was on official business somewhere since everybody else had brought here. But we have no idea. We don't know why Daniel wasn't here. But we do know that his three friends from his community group were here. Verse number 8. 
Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Which, kind of, I mean, malicious was their heart, but the accusation was truthful. I don't know if you know this, but sometimes you get in trouble for doing the right thing. Like, I think sometimes we buy this worldview that if I do the right thing, then I'll be okay. And that's called a prosperity gospel, and it's broken a lot of hearts. The fact is, sometimes if I do the right thing, things will go way worse. Let's dismiss after that encouraging word. Okay. No, there's more. There's more to say. Verse number nine, they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, Oh, king, live forever. Because apparently you already think you're going to because your whole image is made of gold, and that's rejecting chapter two. That's not what they said. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of all those instruments shall fall down and worship the golden image. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. Verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. Man, one way to get to the heart of an insecure man who builds a 90-foot statue of himself They're not paying you enough attention. How dare they? It should have been 91 feet. Whatever. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And I would just pause there to say this is a moment where their Babylon and our Babylon are very similar. Because in their Babylon, it wasn't so much that they believed in another God. It was that they believed in another God exclusively. And that's the same struggle we have in our world today. Our Babylon has no problem with you calling yourself a follower of Jesus. But don't you dare say that Jesus is the only way to have a relationship with God. It's okay for you to say, uh, I'm a believer in Jesus. It's okay for you to say, he's my personal savior. They're like, that's right, as long as it's personal. But as soon as we have opinions that Jesus, who we believe in, says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then they're like, no, 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 that's not personal anymore. Because you said no one. And the constant battleground, we're, we're in a moment right now where... There's so many divisive things in our culture. And I think I've said this from the stage before. I know I've said this to a lot of individuals. And so if I've said this from up here before, forgive me. But it's worth repeating even if I said it before. About six to eight months into the pandemic, um, I got invited onto a Zoom call with a guy named Ed Setzer with some other pastors. And he said, right now, everyone's talking about our freedoms Masks and vaccines, which, by the way, if you were here today for the call to worship, that was neither a pro nor anti-vaccination call to worship today, if you, if you were offended. Um, anyhow, um, I want to say so many other things that wouldn't be helpful in this moment. Um, Stetzer said there's all these discussions about vaccinations and masks, and that was, God help us, in a heartbreaking time of racial tension in our country, and he said... We're really focused on racial conversations. And he said, I just want to want to speak candidly to all the pastors on this Zoom call and say, please don't forget that the battleground for our faith in this country will continue to be biblical sexual ethics. Don't be distracted by anything else. Our battleground will be biblical sexual ethics. 
And it's likely, I, I say this at every Discovery Luncheon, I think in my lifetime, I just think it's likely that we will face losing our tax-exempt status as a church if we choose to stand by biblical sexual ethics. And so in the same way today, Babylon would not say, hey, you have to bow down to our physical altar. They would say you have to bow down to our new definitions of what is right and what is wrong. We together on that? You can believe in Jesus as long as that doesn't actually shape what you believe Jesus says. Right? You're free to do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't infringe. The difference is we, we, we don't tell people who believe differently that they have to do differently than us. But just to believe differently is now considered worthy of a fiery furnace. To believe that God has an opinion. I, I was reading in, in preparation for this, this idea of we edit out the truths of God. In the Smithsonian, in Washington, D.C., there is an original copy of what's called the Thomas, and, Thomas Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson was a part of really enlightened and intelligent people who really enjoyed the moral teachings of Jesus. They just were disgusted by the miracles. They were like, that's not realistic. We're smarter than that. And so there's an edited form of the Bible where it's said that Thomas Jefferson himself, or he had someone else do it, removed the miracles from the stories of Jesus. And I was talking with some pastor friends. I was leading a retreat this week uh, for pastors. And um, I was talking about this story. It's just so fascinating to me that they would physically cut it out. We just ignore it in our day. Like it physically removed it. And my friend said, I have a co-. He's a history nerd. He has this amazing, like his study looks like a library, like a museum. He's like, I have a copy of the Jefferson Bible. And he said, do you know what? Most of the stories of Jesus are there. They found a way to to cautiously remove the miracles and you read about his ministry, everything he says, and you read about his trial and you read about his execution and you read about him being buried in a tomb and then it ends. What a powerless gospel. So in Thomas Jefferson's day, they would say, we're okay with the morality, but we reject the miracles. And in our day, we say, all the miracles are entertaining, but we reject his morality. Come on, somebody. (laughs) And then if you just go across the way to the Museum of the Bible, which I encourage you to do, you'll find the slaveholder Bible, where they removed every part that might confront them viewing a slave as a person worthy of value and equality and bearing the image of God, and they removed it from their Bibles, which is at least honest. At least they acknowledged you can't hate a person or devalue a person by the color of their skin unless you take a razor blade to God's word. In the same way, Babylon constantly wants us to edit truth in order to make the story of God palatable. Babylon has not changed. The scenery has just changed. Verse number 13. We've got to get back to the story. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. They brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? He's going to ask two questions here. That's the first one. But the second question is way more important, so hang with it. He said, if you're ready when you hear all the 
music, to fall down and worship the image I've made, well, and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And he had to be thinking, I already told you this. The little dude came out and went, and like, decreed this. But I'm going to tell you again. But then he asks the second question. (laughs) Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He doesn't even understand his question, which is why we would say his capitalization is incorrect. (laughs) But this is the question that takes this story from the what happened to the so what. Who is your God? Listen to me. This is the point of the story. So I told you I feel like there's two things that maybe we got wrong when we heard this story as children. The first one was that these were teenage boys. That's just not factually true. But the bigger struggle is I think many of us think that the point of this story is be bold and courageous like these kids. Be bold and courageous to stand up in Babylon. And the point of the story is not their courage. The point of the story is who is their God? A guy named Ralph B. Smith said that children ask around 125 questions a day. And all of the parents just spoke in tongues in a Baptist church. That same study about adults said that on average, the average adult only asks six questions a day. We somehow... Lose our curiosity. And we lose 119 questions a day. Maybe because we think we know it all. Or maybe life has beat the curiosity out of us. But the fact is, this is a question worth asking today. Who is your God? Who is your God? The answer to that determines everything. I'm less concerned this morning. I'm concerned... But I'm less concerned with how is your life. I'm more concerned with who is your God. Verse number 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. That is not how you talk to a furious king. Who's wrecked by insecurity. They said, we really don't need to answer you. Wowzers. I understand why we were like, be courageous like these dudes. I get why we missed the point. But they don't mean we don't owe you an explanation. They just mean we have a different king. He's our true authority. Verse 17. If this be so, all of your repeated threats, if this be so, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And if that's not enough, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known. Write it down. Apparently somebody did. Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image That you have set up. For the rest of our time this morning as we work through the rest of the story. I want us to stop and observe who is the God of this chapter. And who is your God? 
Because there's some things worth notating here. Some of them will sound a bit like they're duplicating themselves, and so some will move quickly through. But some of them will stop and park on. And here's the first thing. Who is God in this story? He is able to deliver. That's who God is. God is able to deliver. So there's this massive statue. There's this massive king with a massive ego. And there's a massive crowd. And they all had to be thinking, what puny little three people. And I think they were thinking, how puny is this crowd in comparison with our God? How puny is this idol in comparison to our God? And how puny is that throne (laughs) in comparison to our God? The question today is not how big is my problem. It is how big is my God? Not how big is my struggle, how big is my situation. I constantly have conversations every single day with people who are so articulate about the magnitude of our struggle. We meditate on it. We think about it. We fret about it. We tell other people about it. We can unpack for you in a moment's notice the size of our problem. And then we struggle to articulate the size of our God. Half of what I do that we call counseling is me listening for 30 minutes to a problem and then just trying to encourage you to see that your God's bigger than that. He's bigger. He's bigger than a cancer diagnosis. He's bigger than a lost job. He's bigger than a recession. He's bigger than a broken marriage. He's bigger than a lost friendship. He is bigger than our sin. He is bigger than our worst failure. And he's bigger than the shame that it has left us with. He is bigger than death itself. He's bigger than the grave. And he's bigger than your problem too today. Our God is able. The scriptures tell us that not even a hair can fall from our head apart from his knowledge or permission. So maybe some of us have some things to talk to him about. But he is able. Do you believe that God is able today? Because if he's not, you don't have too big of a problem. You've got too small of a God. He's able. Our God is able to deliver. Observation number two, and he will. (laughs) Our God will deliver. There's an expectation in that faith that doesn't just say God can. It says God will. I expect him to save the day. Bold faith expects that God will deliver. Many of the greatest moments in Scripture were not when God said, Hey, this is what I'll do if you step out in faith. They just believed God would. And they stepped out in faith. Let me be super clear. God is not a magic genie in the lamp that we expect will show up and grant us our wishes when we actually step out in a little bit of faith. In his goodness, plenty of times God says, no, I won't do that because that's not what's best. Or he says, wait, isn't that the worst? 
but faith believes that he will. I don't know if you know who Nick Buicic is. He's a, a motivational speaker and author, um, strong man of God. Nick Buicic was born with no arms and no legs, and yet he keeps a pair of shoes in his closet. Because God can and God will. And even if he won't, he's still better than any alternative. (laughs) So, not how big is your problem, how big is your God. Who is your God? He's the God who can deliver. He's the God who will deliver. And he's the God who's better even if he doesn't. I have great faith that God can. I have great faith that God will. But I do not have great faith in my definition of deliverance. It's been really flawed a lot of times. And when my definition of deliverance hasn't been wrong, my timing of it has often been wrong. Or my perspective. And for sure, there's been a lot of seasons of my life where my preference for deliverance wasn't in the heart of the God of the universe. He had something better in mind. But I can just tell you this. He's better than any other alternative, whether he's on my page or not. He can, he will, and he's still better if he chooses not to. This courage of the three boys. No, no, no. Listen, first of all, they weren't little boys. Second of all, they just believed it's better to die in the flames with God. That's a glorious God. That is a a God. We'd rather die in the flames than live in a palace with you. Wowzers. If Jesus leaves us in the fire, instead of delivering us on the timeline we desire, is he enough? Maybe today your faith is shaken. Some of you... Or walking through a season today. And I just want to tell you this morning, I have enough faith in what I'm about to say that you can borrow this. I still believe that only Jesus will satisfy the longings of the human heart. And if your situation changes tomorrow, but you don't have more of Him, you are not better off. There's nothing better than Him. There's a story of an athlete named Brian Sternberg. Brian Sternberg was a pole vaulter a few decades ago, but a record-setting and record-breaking pole vaulter. He broke record after record after record. And as his fame was beginning to grow in that little pole vaulting world, he had set another record. Three weeks later, he was... Uh, trying to break that record again, he cleared the pole and he landed on his neck. When he landed, he heard a snap and instantly, he said, he felt nothing. And for the rest of his life, he was a quadriplegic in a wheelchair. The thing about Brian Sternberg is he was not just a great athlete, he was very bold in public about his faith in Jesus Christ. Less than a year after that accident, when he'd continued to proclaim Jesus in his little circle of influence, 
a major magazine here in the U.S. wanted to interview him about how his faith could still possibly be strong after this accident and being a quadriplegic in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And what he said was, having faith is necessary for two things. Being healed or having peace of mind. He said, faith is necessary that God can heal me. And faith is necessary to have peace of mind if he chooses not to. And then he said these four words. Either one will suffice. Hmm. That is an unshakable faith that we serve a God who's better than the fire. Verse 19, the Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed. I just think that sounds funny. Like he pouted, he had a poochy lip. I don't know what, what that means, but his, his expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. So the furnace that they typically burned people alive in, who wouldn't do what they were told, clearly was hot enough to have done its normal job. He wanted it heated seven times more than that. This dude just continues. To be overboard. These men were bound. Important word. We're going to see that show up four times in the next couple of verses. They were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their, outer gar- their other garments rather. They were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent. And the furnace overheated. I would say so. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if we hadn't said their names enough times yet in the text, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. And this is where the rumbles of but God begin to show up in the text. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste, not very kingly or dignified, He declared to his counselors, I'm not good at math. Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, your math's not that bad. True, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men. Woo. I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Jesus showed up in such a powerful way that a pagan king couldn't ignore him. And it's amazing to me. These guys are walking around. They are choosing to stay in the presence of the fourth man instead of trying to get out of this furnace. Who is our God? He's able. He will. He's better if he won't. And in the meantime, he's present 
in our suffering. We serve a God who does not sit back in comfort and tell us good luck. He enters the fire with us. What a glorious picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he would see us in our brokenness and choose to enter our brokenness. To take the fires of judgment on himself so that we could walk out free and unarmed. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because he chose to be condemned on our behalf. He took the flame so that we could emerge. And if he went into the hell fires of judgment for you, don't you think he'll keep you safe from whatever ever fire you're facing today? Come on. He's not going to leave you now. He's not going to abandon you now. The God who died for you in the fire is the God who can keep you in the fire. And he's the God who's with you in the fire today. Nebuchadnezzar's like, man, I see four. Yeah. Absolutely you do. But he didn't just see four. He saw four unbound. Who is your God? He's the one who frees us in our suffering. Four times in this text we read the word bind or bound. And yet what we're going to read in just a moment is not only did what bind them get burnt up, but nothing else did. Like in just a moment we'll read, their clothes didn't burn. I don't know if you know the science of fire. That's not how that's supposed to work. Their hair didn't burn. You ever smelt burnt hair? Ugh. Their flesh didn't burn. They didn't even smell like smoke. The only thing that burned were the ropes that were binding them. The reason sometimes... God in his mercy doesn't bounce us out of the fire as quickly as we'd like is we need the adversity of life to set us free from the stuff that's strangling us. Skip Heitzig said this, suffering is the doorway to freedom. And I'm glad Skip Heitzig said that, but the fact is there's a lot of us in this room who would say, that's not words on the screen, that's my testimony. There's many of us in this room who've said, I've walked through difficult, painful, terrible times, and my life's never been the same for the better because of what God set me free from while I was suffering. Who is your God? He's the God who sets us free in the midst of our suffering. If he hasn't set you free from your circumstance yet, I believe with all my heart it's because he's got a purpose in it. You don't have to enjoy that purpose But I'm telling you, you'll enjoy the freedom on the other side. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. And now he's got his capitalization correct. Come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And all of the who's who. Gathered together. I love that. 
I love that we list all the powerful people. You know what the powerful people thought? They saw the fire had no power. <laughs> oh, that's good. The most powerful people on the planet went, maybe we're not as powerful as we think we are. Because we took our really powerful fire and we made it more powerful. Seven times more powerful. It had no power over the bodies of those men. Do you know what their conclusion was? Their God is able. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of the fire had come upon them. Friday before last, after homecoming was over, and everybody's standing around talking the way it is at homecoming, and on and on and on, conversation after conversation after conversation. And I get a phone call from one of our students. Um, and I'm not going to tell you that it was Braden Faulkner because, like, I don't want to bring attention to him. But he says, the daycare's on fire. And because it's Braden, I went, really? And before I could question, really, he went, oh, no, it's not. There's something on fire next to the daycare. And before I could say, really? He went, oh, never mind. It's in the trailer park next door. Which is still alarming, but different than the first thing. Me and Bob and Connor ended up down in the parking lot, which just shout out to Fort Worth Fire Department. Good grief, they showed up quick and did an amazing job. A shout out to our staff member who went and beat on the door of that and woke them up as they were asleep and got them out of that trailer. But as we stood there and the fire was being put out, eventually the wind shifted and I caught a whiff of that smell. If you've ever worked around a fire, that's just a smell. Uh, When I was in between ministry jobs at one point in my life, me and a dear friend of mine, Dave George, if you're watching this today, we... uh, we were just trying to pay the bills, man. A friend of ours owned a construction business. Part of his construction business was fire restoration, which means you've got to empty the house so you hire the people you like least in your life. I, I, I still remember when he hired us because he told us how much money he was going to pay us. And I was like, that's a ton of money. Like, wow, that's really good pay for just emptying a house. By day two, I was like, we are so underpaid. It was awful. Like, it was... It's the closest to purgatory. It was awful. It was so bad. And part of what was so bad is when I tell you that for weeks I could smell that, that fire smell, and they walked straight out and didn't smell, that's not how that works. Clearly there's a bigger power here. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, the only thing that you could possibly say, blessed be the God. Remember? Who's the God? Oh, I'm going to bless him. Hmm. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel, delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. A couple quick observations here. Who is your God? Listen to me. Here's who he is. He's worthy 
to be praised. The only appropriate response to the God of the Bible is to bless his name. We do not gather in this place and worship because we're good people. There's no other possible response to the reality of who he is than to bless him. We worship because we can't see him and respond in any other way. And if we don't worship him, if our hearts don't stir up to bless him, I would submit to you, you need to see him. You need to turn your direction away from your circumstance or away from yourself or away from measuring your capacity to endure your suffering and just look at him. Because even a pagan looks at him and can't help but bless him. He's worthy to be praised. He's also worthy to be trusted. He is trustworthy. Nebuchadnezzar was not moved by their courage or their boldness. He was moved by their God and by their trust in him. If our God is who we claim he is, then he is worthy to be trusted with whatever we walked in here carrying today. I want to finish this chapter. Two more verses. Therefore, I make a decree. He just loves to do that. Any people, nation, or language. Oh, wait, there's that phrase again. He makes a revelation decree here. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. He enjoys that phrase too. For there's no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Amen. That's right. Hallelujah. Good job, Nebuchadnezzar. Only it took you 17 years to forget that, but I'm glad you remembered. There's no God like him. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Who is our God? He's able to deliver. He will deliver. But if not, he's still better. He is present in our suffering. He frees us. In our suffering, he is worthy to be praised, and he's worthy to be trusted, which means I want us to circle back and make one one more observation about our God. And it's actually experienced through the lenses of King Nebuchadnezzar as he starts doing the math. Our God is astonishing. Verse 24 tells us that King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. When's the last time our hearts were astonished at the glory of our God, at the power of our God, at the magnitude of our God? When's the last time we allowed our hearts to be astonished? Literally, we're, we're in a moment in history where your phone is constantly trying to astonish you. If you astonish enough to click or like or heart or share, then more money is gained. We're in the business of trying to out-astonish one another. And I'm just telling you, if we will look up, there's something far more astonishing than anything this life has to offer you. It is your God. The one who's present with you in the storm. And I don't totally know how this works, but scholars tell us that this moment of astonishment birthed a movement of people among those astrologers that we talked about the first week, among those magi who began to seek after an experience from this God. 
And that's the same group of people who came searching for a star at the birth of Jesus. Meaning there was generational fruit of faith because God revealed himself to a generation. I just wonder, in our moment, with whatever you're suffering in today, with whatever doesn't look the way you wish it looked today, what will future generations say about our God as we walk through this fire? A small group of people over the age of 95 were all asked one question. If you had your life to do over again, what would you do differently? It's a great question to ask a group of people who are over age 95. What would you do different? There was three answers from the the group that, that rose to the top. One was, I would risk more instead of being so scared. I would reflect more instead of being so distracted. But the third thing, the third consensus among this group of 95-year-olds was I would do more things that will live on after I die. How we reflect who our God is in suffering is something that will outlive us. That's a testimony that will outlive us. Are we preaching to ourselves who our God is today? This last thought and then I'll close. Um, I highly recommend a a book called Soundtracks by John Acuff. I read it a year and a half ago. Great book. The whole idea of the book Soundtracks is that we're constantly listening to a script. We don't just feel feelings. We're thinking thoughts. And we tend to dwell and overthink on the problem that we're facing. And we overthink our capacity to navigate the problem that we're facing. And this pretty extensive story, more than 10,000 people participated in a survey overseen by Mike Beasley. He's a Ph.D. statistician. They asked 10,000 people who are professed overthinkers, how does overthinking make you feel? 73% of overthinkers said that overthinking makes me feel inadequate. And then they asked the question, does overthinking make you feel drained? 52% said yes. And the reason that overthinking makes us feel inadequate and drained is because we are thinking more about the magnitude of our problem or the magnitude of our capacity to navigate it rather than the magnitude of our God who is present, who's bigger than that who will save the day. And even if he doesn't do that on our terms, he's still better than anything else this life has to offer. And we trust that he is setting us free in the midst of the struggle. We trust that he's revealing his power in the struggle. We trust that even in the struggle, he's still worthy to be praised. He's still worthy to be trusted. And that is astonishing. Not how's life. I got a better question for you today. Who is your God?